Um, I wouldn't normally do this, but here's a really good book blurb that is going to introduce my next guest, and I'm too lazy to write a better one. I don't think I could. In the late 1980s, two teenage girls found refuge from a world of cosy conformity, sexism and the nuclear arms race in protest and punk. Then, drawn in by a promise of meaning and purpose, they cast off their punk outfits and became born-again Christians. Unsure which fate would come first, nuclear annihilation or the second coming of Jesus, they sought answers from end-times evangelists, scrutinising friends and family for signs of demon possession and identifying eftpos and barcodes as signs of a looming apocalypse. Fast forward to 2021, and Rebecca and Maz, now a science historian and an engineer, are on a road trip to the West Coast. Their journey, full of laughter and conversation and hot pies, is haunted by the threats of climate change, conspiracy theories, and massive and overdue earthquake. And times interweaves the stories of these two periods in Rebecca's life, both of which have at heart a sleepless fear of the end of the world. The Rebecca in question is Rebecca Priestley, Professor of Science in Society at Teherengawaka Victoria University of Wellington. She's an interdisciplinary humanities researcher. She's written several books. She'll be appearing at the Nelson Arts Festival on October the 21st. And she joins me now. Kia ora. Kia ora, Kim. Did you write that blurb? I, I think it was a mixture of me and Ashley Young from um, Teheringawaka University Press. It's a great blurb. <laughs> Thank you. It's, it made me smile hearing it again. You don't usually get blurbs as good as that. But you <laughs> talk to Christianity very seriously. Let me just read this paragraph from your book under the chapter Salvation. We had never done things by halves. And once we'd accepted Jesus Christ as Lord, we hit it hard. We ripped the posters of the cure and the sex pistols from our bedroom walls. We stopped defiling our bodies with alcohol, cigarettes and pot. At school, we started smiling at our teachers and working hard to make use of the gifts given to us by God. In the evenings, we did our homework, watched wholesome television programs and read our Bibles. We prayed for our little brother and sister that they would get saved too. We prayed that our Verukas would go away. Now, how long, Rebecca, did that go on for? Um, two years. It was from about the age of 16 to 18. And the reason I've got so much detailed information is that I, I wrote a lot of this from my journals from that time, which I sort of delved into to, to start this piece of writing. How do you see yourself looking back at yourself now? Well, it, it's it's a time that I've kind of avoided 
thinking about too deeply because um, I thought it would, you know, be quite cringy. But now, you know, with, with many decades perspective, it's it's kind of interesting. And I was able to kind of connect the anxieties of that time of being a teenager in the 1980s and sort of see how how it would have been so appealing to, to have this sort of alternative way of living, of being, of, of thinking about and understanding the world. That was a sort of a bit of a, a salvation um, for us. It was a, a sort of safe place for us to be compared to, you know, the world that we felt that we were living in and where we were heading. We should all grow old enough to be able to see our past selves as interesting rather than tragic. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, possibly tragic as well. But I thought it was interesting in the light of, you know, things that are happening in the world today. I'm not suggesting you were tragic. I was thinking of myself for a moment there. <laughs> um, when did you get the idea to write this book, please? Well, I started it at the Kapiti Writers Retreat in early 2021, and I was there with Maz. And I'd brought my teenage journals with me from this period, thinking that I, I might have a go at writing something. I guess I'd got interested, and the reason I went back to them was that some of the things we were talking about in the 80s with these end times prophecies about one world government and um, um, and so on were things that some people were talking about now as a consequence of the COVID pandemic. And I was just thinking, yeah, I've heard this stuff before. We were talking about these things in the 80s. So that sort of made me revisit and go back and see if the things I vaguely remembered remembered were true. And I, I was able if to every, do that through these. Yeah. I wonder if every, I just, by the way, I wondered whether yeah. every generation has its own um, sense of dread about end times in some form or other. Probably, um, but I think um, us Gen Xers like to like to think that we maybe have it a bit more than most. But when you think about what current teenage generations are going through, and I've got teenage children, they've got the spectre of climate change, which is a, a you know a very real and and hideous thing to be thinking about. And it's not surprising there's so much anxiety in our young people. One of the things that you do in this book is you. I was going to say talk to people who are not on the same page as you, but I was, I mean, yep. listen to. Mm. Um, one of them is a mayor that really doesn't believe that climate change is that bad a thing and loves coal. And speaking yes. of coal, um, it's almost as if you're saying that Stockton is all right because the coal is very good and it's better than the bad coal. Well, I didn't say that. Maybe the people that I listened to said that and I documented that. Um, I guess what I, I'm maybe, maybe trying to say is that everything is nuanced, nothing is, is black and white. And I, I guess part of one of the things that I was concerned about and maybe responding to was the increasing polarisation of everything in our society, um, we seem to be getting more and more divided. And so maybe this was a, me taking a step towards trying to find common ground with people. Um, and the people that I spoke to in the book um, about coal or working in the coal mine were also concerned about climate change. Um, yeah, and talk, yeah. I get, I get so your point absolutely about 
about nuance. I mean, this is this is a bit mm. from your description of Stockton coal. This is coking mm. coal, metallurgical, exported for use in steel making in Japan, India, China, South Africa, and Brazil. High levels of vitronite, low levels of ash, reducing the amount of coal required to produce a ton of steel. Therefore, reducing the amount of carbon dioxide generated in the steel production. So, is it somehow good coal? After all, if the steel-making companies can't get Stockton coal, they'll have to burn inferior coal, which would release more carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. And that's a perfectly valid argument. The, th the thing now, though, is that people are kind of afraid of that nuance. I mean, we're already we're hearing it with the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And yeah. nuance indicates lack of commitment. Ah, oh, it's that old W.B. Yeats poem, isn't it? The worst are full of passion, intensity, the best lack all conviction. But, yeah, but the thing is, if, if we all... I've got, you know, strongly held political convictions. If we all stick to our corner and refuse to listen to each other, then we will never we'll never make progress. We'll never get out of the holes that we're in. No. And, you know, people more, you know, are much better than me at talking about this sort of thing. But finding this common ground and finding these common values is essential. And that, that's actually something that I, I know about from, you know, research into science communication and public engagement with science if you sort of, you know, spout facts at people and, and try and tell them things, it doesn't really work. And, you know, you do need to try and reach out and find the commonalities, um, the common ground and shared values as a way of starting to sort of listen to each other and, and share information with each other. As long as you can keep some kind of impetus for change within sure. that commonality. Because it could yeah, be no, used as a kind totally. of a bromide, couldn't it? Sure. But also I think that um, for me, I've been communicating about climate change, writing about climate change for a couple of decades. But I feel like, you know, I'm communicating to people who are interested in science and want to read sciencey books and science columns. And for me to understand the people who are maybe not so receptive to the sort of message, I need to listen to them first mm. and maybe will help me to communicate better with, with people who are maybe a bit more um, on the fence or a bit more sort of in the other direction in terms of being concerned about climate change. You've read, you've led quite a risky life for somebody <laughs> who has a sense of dread. <laughs> well, my sense of dread is kind of, it's, it's well, balance doesn't quite the right word. It's accompanied by a sort of, um, you know, an adventurousness and, um yeah, a bit of thrill-seeking. They seem to, it's more like being on a seesaw than having any sort of balance. It's interesting, though, that you'll, you'll take certain risks with your own welfare, as you describe in the book, but you have a great deal of trouble sleeping in a place that is on the alpine fault, on the off chance that something might happen oh, yeah. in the night. Well, it wasn't an off chance. I calculated the risk <laughs> that night. I think it was about one chance in 18,000 or something mm. like that. But I, I guess I just felt I was in a situation that if the Alpine fault went off, I would have no viable plan 
And I, I guess I always, I always like to have a plan of what I would do if. And I don't like to put myself into a situation where I've got no idea what I could do or, or I'd be a bit helpless. I look back on myself, you write, and Maz, as teenagers and see our need to be rescued from the anxieties of our age. We swapped fighting racism, sexism and nuclear war for fighting Satan, infidels and worldliness. What a waste of energy. But when Maz and I talk about it, we agree that Christianity was more than just a distraction. There was something real there, something we can't explain away. So, what does that mean? There is still religious belief on your part? Oh, I don't know if I'd call it religious belief. I, th- I think that's something that we tapped into. I've, I've, I read an article recently about awe and um, something about that sense of awe that you can get in nature. I get it in nature a lot, but also as part of a, a communal activity um, or, or, you know, a big community event. And, you know, when, when I think about this sort of... Um, the church services with the the singing and and the, all the positivity around us, there was very much that sort of feeling. But I also had that feeling, was it earlier this year or last year, at a Harry Styles concert in Auckland where I yeah. went with my daughter, um, Pippi, and where um, um, Harry sort of called out um, to Teramaina Iwi, and I think he was expecting we were all going to go, oh, way. But the crowd instead were just carried on, sang the whole song. And it was just this kind of wonderful moment. Yeah. And it was kind of funny because it was happening at a Harry Styles concert. Um, and, yeah, I just had that, that sort of wonderful sense of awe and community. Um, and I guess that's what I would compare the religious experience to. Mm. Though it did get me thinking about a lot of moral things as well. And instead of being just angry at everything, um, I started thinking about... I guess how to be good is a is a sort of shorthand for what I was grappling with. I guess mm. how to live a good life. Got the answer? No, I, I keep on trying. <laughs> you say in the book that as a travelling companion, you're constantly flustered. Where are my glasses? Where's yes. my phone? Where's my pen? Yes. You say I don't think it's dementia. But I do think there's something weird about my brain. I can hyper-focus enough to write a book, but struggle with the everyday things I've learned to call executive functioning. Then there are the things I call shyness, introversion, anxiety. What is weird about your brain? I mean, at at the time when when I was on the trip, I was sort of wondering about neurodiversity whether I, I was neurodiverse and and um, the sort of online quizzes and things that I'd done had suggested that I was. And, and since then I have um, gone through quite an exhaustive diagnostic process. And yes, I have been diagnosed. I've got ADHD, um, inattentive subtype. Um, and to me that, that explains a lot. Is it good to have that diagnosis then? Yeah, it's very helpful. Yeah, it's it's massively helps me sort of understand things 
why I am the way I am. You yeah, would have you would have read Russell Brown's account of his diagnosis. Um, and I spoke to him a little while ago, and he says the same thing, that it came as a huge relief. But I'm, I'm just a little worried, and you know more about it than I do on all sorts of levels, mm-hmm. that we are pathologizing personality. What do you think? Yeah, um... I don't know. I, I I guess, yeah, I don't know. There are people who are neurodiverse and there are people who are not. And I think... Um, are there? Yeah. Sorry? I mean, are there people who are not neurodiverse? Yes. I think often people, um, and with the autism spectrum, often people get confused and think that everyone's on the spectrum. Mm-hmm. That it's, but really, there is an autism spectrum in which some people, you know, people with autism are on different parts of the autism spectrum. It's not like a, every person on the planet is on the spectrum. Right. I think that but is, I'm, a, you know, I'm, that is an understanding mm-hmm. that some people have, including me. I think. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And so how does the diagnosis help you now? Um, Well, it's helping me understand the things that, um, why I find certain things very challenging, like um, being being tidy. I am very untidy and why I'm sort of constantly losing things. Um, And... I guess it sort of stops me beating myself up about those things. Um, But it also, you know, the flip side is my hyper-focus. You know, I find it easier to write a book than to, you know, tidy the house or um, know where my kids are. (laughs) That sounds, sorry, I don't mean to diminish your pain, but that sounds a really, really good thing to me. Yeah, it could get frustrating, you know, by my age, I thought maybe I could sort of get on top of these things, but it, um, yeah, I, get, I guess it sort of helps me know there are some things that maybe I'm just not very good at, and that's okay. Yeah. I, it's a very revealing book. Um, mm. And you write, about, uh, you write about a breakdown that you had when, how old mm. would you have been? 20? 18? Yeah. I think 18, yeah. And, I mean, that was clearly a, a terrible thing. You got the flu... You just, you couldn't get out of bed and you couldn't stop crying. I mean, that's classified as a breakdown. We're familiar with Mm. that. And your mother um, looked after you. Did you get over it? Did it stay with you? How do you move on from that? Well, I, I guess this was the point where I was kind of deciding whether this whole Christianity thing that I was involved in this you know very evangelical Christianity was was true or not and um and the idea that maybe maybe it wasn't and and um I needed to sort of get out of it and change was was you know really huge at that time and actually my mother was in another city. My, I, I was. Um, she organised for me to go and stay with my aunt. I was living in Christchurch and was sort of two weeks from finishing a course and heading home. Oh, that's right. Um, 
Yeah, so once I got home, I was kind of okay. I think it was, you know, the fact that I was kind of on my own um, grappling with this really huge stuff was really physically run down after having the flu. Um, sort of all contributed. Um, and, and once I got home, once I was back with my mother, my family, and and with Maz, to be able to talk about these things, I kind of, um, yeah, started coming out of it. But, it, yeah, it was a very dark time. You and Maz, what good friends you are. <laughs> yes. Yeah, friends since we were two. And opposites in many ways. In many ways, yeah. She's she's sort of much more outgoing than I am. The end of the book goes like this. At the start of the pandemic, I'd used the lockdowns as an opportunity to withdraw, shared what had become my costume, my many masks, and had started to re-engage with what I thought of as my feral self. And after a week on the road, I can see that I needed to find a way back into the world, a place where there was more room for laughter. It was a very therapeutic road trip you had, wasn't it? Oh, it was fabulous, yeah. It was only a week, but it was, it was yeah, wonderful, awesome. Like just taking a slice out of your life for a moment. Yeah. And being, you know, having a demanding job and being parent to three children, um, it's very rare that my focus is on on myself or having fun. Um, so, yeah, doing that for a week was, was really great. And, yes, I do recommend it to anyone who, who is able to do that. Good advice, I feel. You um, have a playlist on our webpage. <laughs> And yeah. you will give you, it's a long playlist of the music that you listen to when you're on the road in the West Coast with Maz. Um, yes. We've got a couple of tracks here that we want to play and you can choose one of them, either Depeche Mode or Human League. Oh, I think I'd go for the Human League. Excellent. Lovely to talk to you. Here's Human Thank League, you. Don't You Want Me Baby, Rebecca Priestley. <laughs> 